Hey, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski, bringing you intelligence for your body, mind, and soul every single week. And I'm doing my best to curate the brightest and best guests on the planet so you can start to understand and decode and demystify all of the information that's out there. Now, there's been this huge movement lately toward dogmatic nutrition. What does that mean? It means some people are eating carnivore and only carnivore, and they think that's the only way to go. And then you have this other camp that says, hey, veganism is the way to go, and meat products are evil. And I'm really trying to get to the bottom of it. And it seems as though my stance has become... Uh, neither of them is 100% accurate, except maybe in a small population of people or over a short period of time. I think human beings are meant to eat cyclically. And today's guest has a brilliant, brilliant perspective into how all of this stuff works. Sally Norton joins me to talk about her ventures into veganism and how it was ultimately leading to her decline and her demise. Her health just deteriorated dramatically over years. She was someone who ate very, quote unquote, healthfully as a child and all the way through teenage and and years into her 20s and started to suffer from tremendous negative health implications. And certainly there's many things that go into that, but she's got some really interesting perspective that have led her down this path of becoming an expert in something called oxalates, which is a plant toxin that ultimately wreaks havoc on your body that most of us are unaware of in quote unquote health foods, prototypical foods that we think are healthy and we're doing something great for ourselves, sometimes are leading to the very things that we're trying to avoid. Dr. Norton speaks about her thoughts around how we should be eating, how much meat is necessary, or or maybe can we get away with, and what types of vegetables should we be focusing on. Now, this may sound like it's getting into the weeds a little bit, but from what I've seen, this conversation on oxalates is an extremely powerful one, and actually doesn't require you removing that many things from your diet, although there is a couple of very, very important things to remove that we think are typical health foods, and I would strongly suggest removing it, and I've removed it and noticed a huge difference. One of the things I've actually removed, which is interesting, is superfoods, greens, super greens, taking them out, and notice a tremendous improvement in my digestion and the way my stomach feels in general. I'll let Dr. Norton tell you a little bit more about that. We talk about the modern day creation, I guess, or curation of veganism, where it came from, where the the breakfast foods revolution came from, some really interesting stuff. And she seems brilliantly up to date on history as well. And I'd love to hear you guys have some perspective on this. If you do, I'd love to hear a review. I would love to hear from you on my social media. Uh, Today's podcast is brought to you by wildalaskanseafoodbox.com, the best Alaskan seafood I've ever had in my life. They send me a box, actually, sorry, two boxes every month because I like to eat fish. Apparently, it's really, really good. You guys are going to enjoy it. I seared some up last night in a frying pan, literally just a little bit of olive oil and some salt, and it was absolutely fantastic. No sauces, nothing. I didn't even use any lemon this time. It was literally just this sauteed goodness of wild Alaskan salmon, a little bit of fresh pressed olive oil, and some sea salt. And I was in absolute bliss. And you guys can get hooked up because they're bumping up our discount to $25 off any one-time purchase at wildalaskanseafoodbox.com slash Ben. So your discount is $25 off. You can use the code Ben or go to wildalaskanseafoodbox.com slash Ben and get hooked up. 
another thing to point out, you don't have to subscribe anymore. They've actually changed the offer. So it used to be a subscription. Now you can just choose to do it once if you want to give it a try. No obligation to stick around and it's a bigger discount. I suggest you guys stick around because it's so awesome to get a surprise like Christmas morning when you get your frozen fish sent to your door and it's still really well frozen. They do a really good job of making sure it stays frozen by shipping on dry ice. I highly suggest you check out wildlessonseafoodbox.com slash Ben and enjoy this podcast with Sally Norton. Sally, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you. It's great to meet you. Yeah, we're recording live on the Muscle Intelligence Facebook group, which is something we just started doing during Corona, so people can have a little more interaction. So obviously, some people are going to be uh, isolated, and the ability to kind of communicate with us and ask questions as we go is kind of a nice little added feature. So maybe at the end, if you have a few minutes, if there's a couple of questions that come up around topics, we'll hopefully be able to answer them. That'd be fun. So for anyone that doesn't know you, uh, you've got a very interesting past. And I'd love to have you tell us a little bit about, I don't know everything about you, but you started off as a vegetarian. And now you've taken a turn in a different direction. I'll let you kind of tell our listeners about that. Well, it's been over 20 years since I abandoned vegetarianism. At that point, I had been a vegan for eight years. And prior to that, I had been a vegetarian for eight years. So I put in 16 years of trying really hard to be the perfect veggie. I was really concerned about the environment and, you know, eating shrimp and all this stuff was so bad for the environment and convinced that some of the health arguments made sense, although they didn't. And my health really ejected me out of that. And my immune system had decayed to the point where I was now reacting to half the stuff I was eating, most of the things I was eating badly. And it became quite obvious as I'm in a coma on the sofa trying to get through biostats while feeling like garbage, you know. So so give me some examples of that. Because like that, so when most people hear of vegetables and being a vegan, like a lot of people have this belief that, oh, they're ubiquitously healthy. And, And you're saying... That may not be the case. It's saying eating some vegetables caused some some inflammatory issues for you. Oh, yeah, indeed it did. And it's really hard to tell that this is going on. Uh, the damage that is caused through things that we're eating day in and day out is tricky to identify. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of subtle effects and delayed effects. And our mindset is such that we can't see what's going on. And most people are so disconnected from the way they feel. They're disconnected from their body, right? They're so busy thinking or in their own brain. There's no connection with the body. And, and our, our audience, so you know, is like we perpetuate this every day. It's like connect with your body, learn to feel how you feel, learn to feel your emotions. And, and so this would be a really good receptive audience for you. Great, great. Well, you know, and I was prone to that. I started practicing yoga in high school, right after high school, I taught myself and studied yoga in various places where I've lived over the past and got a TM mantra back in 1992 or something. And have practiced and taught all forms of meditation and pranayama and so on. So I'm aware of tuning in. But if you don't have enough information, the the information your body's trying to get to you isn't obvious. And Mm -hmm. Also, what I'm seeing now is much more obvious to me now post this learning about the oxalate side of the plant problem is that it confuses your ability to 
communicate with your body. Like your body isn't able to complain anymore. It's getting enough problems going on that the signals that you need to be capable of hearing. It's like a low level white noise is always yeah. there. Yeah. It's not, you can't tell. And, and a lot of us, after we change our diet rel- relevant to the oxalate, which is probably the most serious problem in plant foods, is some plant foods produce a lot of this chemical called oxalate. And those of us who've worked away from the oxalate in our diet and started to recover, what happens is our body starts telling us more and more about what we should and shouldn't be eating. Sure. And the path out of disease starts to become obvious. The problem sure. is if you let that problem go on too long, the path out is longer and harder. Sure. So backing up a little bit, like I'd love to have you kind of start explaining some of the symptoms you're experiencing while you're a vegetarian or vegan. And how long did it take before you started to experience this? Because we get a lot of people that that say, oh, I'm a vegan now and I feel really good. And, and that's really common. I hear that all the time. And my response is often, that's very normal. Like, that's awesome. But how long does that last? How long did it take before you really started to see your deleterious effects from lacking animal products? Or I don't know if it's, if you're, and I'll ask your opinion on this. Is it because you lacked animal products or is it because the vegetables that you were choosing inherently were high in these, these inflammatory compounds? It was definitely not because I lacked animal products because I have had 20 years on animal products after that. And I had 20 years on animal products before that. So I've got in between my 16 years, I've got like 40 years of using you know more normal foods with eggs and meat and cottage mm-hmm. cheese and whatever. And even outside of my vegetarian years, there was a sign of problems. I started having back pain and joint pain. I even woke up one time with like a momentary paralysis at age 12. Hmm. Like physical paralysis. Like in the morning, I could, I, it was a very subtle, brief moment in time. Less than a minute, for sure, probably less than 10 seconds, Mm -hmm. but literally paralyzed. But I was having severe back pain as a 12-year-old. I was gardening and hurting my back. But what I was doing is all through childhood, I was into vegetables and fruits, picking rhubarb behind the the shed. My mom would make rhubarb crisp. I love my beet greens. I love my vegetables. I would be the kid who would eat three portions of the main meal skip the ice cream so I could run out and play. You know, so I was very veggie centric as a kid. I love foods. I love flavors, textures, you know, so I was already in doing iced tea in high school. I'd come home from high school and make a 16 ounce glass of iced tea after school. And then so by all accounts, you were doing everything that people think their children should be doing. Like, oh, like I wish my kids ate more from the garden. I wish my kids ate more of these fresh fruits and vegetables. Kids now are going to the, the gas station and getting monster energy drinks that, you know, like it blows my mind. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you're the one eating rhubarb out of the garden and, and ended up having some negative effects. Yeah, self-medicating is really popular at all levels, whether it's, you know, running for the allergy medicine or the the energy drinks. But I, I wasn't really self-medicating. I was just oh. eating what I thought was sensible food. I mean, I got interested in nutrition in kindergarten. I would run home and tell them, my mom, whatever we learned about what we're supposed to eat. I was featured in the local paper in second grade for being a good breakfast eater. And of course, they're teaching us to eat toast. And <laughs> yeah, sure. Terrible food. And then it was seventh grade when I decided I would get my degree in nutrition. By 10th grade, I knew I would go to Cornell University to get my degree. I I wanted to be in health promotion because I thought, well, if you know how to eat, you can prevent all kinds of health problems, chronic disease. You know, you can be more focused and productive in your life and get into something, a life you want to live Mm -hmm. through knowing how to eat well. But I was at Cornell with gout. 
I was vegetarian at Cornell. I had gout. It wasn't from my high meat diet. I wasn't eating meat. Mm-hmm. And I had to leave Cornell for foot surgery. Wow. My feet were killing me. I did everything I could to try to hang on and get that degree. And I just couldn't do it anymore. It ended up where I couldn't go to class. I couldn't go to dinner. I was on crutches. I got a pass to drive on campus, which is pretty intense on a college campus to be able to get that, right? It wasn't working. And then I wasn't recovering well from the surgery. I was still growing my Swiss chard and eating Swiss chard because despite my degree in nutrition, I had no idea that decay of the connective tissue in my feet and inability to recover from surgery and to have foot problems in the beginning could be at all related to Swiss chard and beet greens. I had no idea. So most people will hear of gout and you'll think the body's inability to get rid of uric acid, which could be, you know, maybe too much protein, maybe not enough water, like, but now the, the one you've discovered is this, this oxalate pathway. And again, you're, I'd love for you to explain that, why that happened, because I'm certainly not an expert in gout. Well, interesting thing about gout, if you actually read the literature, and I've posted this on my Instagram page, so people should check this out. This is really worth looking at. There are four or five types of gout gouty arthritis. And oxalate gout is a known thing in the literature. But sometime about 30 years ago, we decided that only uric acid gout counted. And that's what we're going to call gout now. But in fact, there was a very good paper written by the guy who was the editor of the rheumatology journal for years. He's a, you know, a, a god in his field was saying, no, gout is all these things. And the other piece is that this is not that well studied, but I get the impression from the literature that uric acid follows oxalate around the body as an antioxidant and will replace an oxalate crystal that might land in your joint space with a uric acid crystal. So even urate gout might have started as oxalate gout, and then the lesser of the two evils would be the uric acid crystals. Okay, so I think we should we should back up because I don't want to assume the audience knows any idea of what, oxal- oxal- what oxalates are. Yeah, so I, I really wanted to kind of dive into this reality that you lived life as a vegan and a vegetarian for a long time and have gone the other path. Because I still fight this this battle with people, uh, especially people who make their children ve- vegetarian and vegans. Mm-hmm. I'm not a zealot, and I'm not going to say you should do anything. You choose what you what you want to do for your, for yourself and your family. But I think having legitimate examples like yourself is important. So I'd like for you to first define uh, what oxalates are. And the second thing I'd like to talk about is uh, a little bit about you, what you believe maybe predisposed you to these results you're getting. Do you think it was a genetic thing? Was there some type of, you know, maybe your immune system was compromised or was it just because, hey, this is the way I ate from, from in your best estimate? Okay. So those are two big discussions. What are oxalates? Mm-hmm. I love that you say that in plural because that's exactly the case. The parent compound of these family of compounds called oxalate is oxalic acid, which is a little tiny acid with only two carbons. It has four oxygens and technically two protons, but the protons fall off because it's an acid and it releases those hydrogens. Those are the acid molecules. And then it has this charge that makes it really reactive. It can dissolve in water and it can recombine with positively charged things, which are minerals. Calcium and all kinds of other minerals, magnesium and so on, will connect with oxalic acid and create various types of oxalates. So you have sodium oxalate, potassium oxalate, lithium oxalate, magnesium oxalate. Like you can go through the whole thing about all the... So there's all these ways of where certain kind of mineral will connect with it. Then those individual molecules will start lining up. You get a group of like six pairs and then they start lining up and forming crystals. 
And then you get the seed to create a nanocrystal. Now, nano means uber, uber, uber small. Mm -hmm. Nano is like smaller than one little triglyceride in your cell membrane, right? It's really on on the triglyceride, it still is like a dot. And these Mm -hmm. little flecks of nanocrystals can flow right in and around and through cells. And nanocrystals are quite toxic. And the literature equates the nanocrystals of oxalate with nanoparticles of asbestos and silica. Wow. So the, the, we actually eat oxalic acid, oxalates, because some plants are great at producing them. They use, they use oxalic acid and combine it with calcium. This is the way it's most commonly found in nature, in soils, in rocks, and in plants, is calcium oxalate. In the body, calcium oxalate is a calcification or a stone, often called it calcium kidney stone. They left out the word oxalate, so everyone's been blaming calcium for what oxalate does. But basically, all kinds of pathologies involving calcium, loss of calcium, low calcium in the body, calcium traces left behind, calcified arteries, problems with heart function, problems with kidney, can be related to oxalic acid and its oxalate family because... If you're eating a lot of the oxalates that break up easily, like the sodium oxalate and potassium oxalate, they become calcium oxalate in your blood. By taking calcium out of your blood and cells and disrupting the electrolyte balance and starting to reduce calcium levels in the body. So it'll do it in the food. It'll do it in the gut as you're digesting your food. It will capture calcium in ways where you don't absorb calcium from your food. So it removes calcium from the food and, and attaches onto things. So you said, I'm thinking calcification of the arteries that's contributing to the oxalates are contributing to the calcification. So in some way they're, they're taking the calcium from somewhere else and, and binding it in particular places. Is that what I'm, get, what I'm getting? Yeah. Basically calcium, kind of gets kidnapped by a bad guy and becomes mm-hmm. a bad guy, right? So, so how does the body differentiate where it's going to land? Do we have any idea of like why, why would it be calcification of the arteries versus the joints or is it just kind of all over the place and depending where you kind of bung up first? This is actually a huge scientific question that hasn't had enough study, but there's lots of evidence and we know that oxalic acid ions and calcium oxalate and other forms of oxalate, the soluble forms, travel through the bloodstream. We absorb them into the bloodstream and they by themselves are causing inflammation and stress on the vascular system. And any cells that get injured and harm in the, in the course of that inflammation start to be either weakened because they've lost a glutathione self-protection process or they start to get old and die younger. Those dying cells can't defend themselves. So it a calcium oxalate crystal can get stuck to the proteins on those membranes of the dying cells that can't defend themselves. So injured tissue is a place where oxalate gets hung up. And then in that same tissue, we have regenerating cells. Okay, well, we've got to replace the dying cells and the damage. We come in, we make new cells. Regenerating cells have a heavy stickiness because on those proteins, what's really, what the oxalate's sticking to on the proteins is the glycoprotein part. So glyco is the sugar molecules that are on the outside of these proteins. So kind of like my frizzy hair, there's this stuff sticking out of the cell, these little fingers of sugars. And that creates kind of, you can think of it like seaweed, like hanging out there. And that's where the oxalate gets trapped. 
So this is your regenerating cells in your injured tissue where you, you start to interrupt your healing and the healing is never complete. Voila, foot problem, weakened bones, weakened connective tissue in my feet that never get better because I never quit eating the oxalate and I ended up having 30 years with foot problems. It sounds like almost like a damaged, someone who's got injuries and, and is unhealthy to begin with, maybe more predisposed to these negative symptoms. So it's almost like a slippery slope. So the worse you are, the worse it's going to contribute to negative health. Exactly. And think about it. Now, if people recognize where oxalate is coming from and the fact that foods that we think now are healthy are mm -hmm. quite high in these oxalate. You think well, you wouldn't want to give it to a little child or someone in the hospital or someone in a nursing home or an elderly person. You wouldn't want to give them something that has a, a nasty toxin like oxalate. But in fact, since spinach is so popular right now, we're quite content to leave spinach on the salad bar at a nursing home or a daycare center. And all these vulnerable populations are not being protected. So let's talk about what foods are most abundant in, in oxalates. Yeah. So it's not even all over the food world. All the animal foods are more or less from a nutritional standpoint, free of oxalate. So we're only talking about plant foods and only certain ones. In the leafy green department and in the vegetable aisle, if you're talking about, because vegetables are one kind of plant food, then we have seeds and grains and, you know. Yeah. So we can talk about all of them. But if we start in the produce department, the big problem in the produce department is the spinach, Swiss chard, beet greens, sorrel, purslane, which no one in America eats sorrel and purslane. But it's really like these oddballs. Yeah. Everything else, all the lettuces are low in oxalate. And the cabbage family as a group is another one that doesn't make a lot of oxalate and doesn't sequester a lot of this calcium oxalate. So even kale is not too bad in oxalate. All of them are quite fine in reasonable quantities. Now you could, it's because it's a dose problem. If you really jammed in enough kale chips and lived on them, you could get into oxalate problems with kale chips, but it's not that many greens. The problem is we have salad mixes with these bad oxalate greens masquerading as lettuce. And they'll buy these musculine mixes that are full of baby beet greens and baby Swiss chard greens because they have that pretty red. And that red Swiss chard is really high, one of the highest foods in oxalate that normal people are eating. And they're buying it in the, the masculine mix and these salad green mixes that include spinach because that's dark is supposed to be good. It's really rough estimate of goodness. <laughs> so let me ask you this. It sounds like you're the world expert in this. Can you taste oxalates? I feel like all those foods you mentioned right there have a very specific mouthfeel to them and all, everything else doesn't. Would you, do you notice that? Well, it, you can tell with sorrel. Sorrel is not used in the common man's diet, but if you go out for a good meal, a fancy meal, the fancy chefs want to put a little sorrel sauce under your meat or something. Sorrel is really high in oxalate and it's tart like lemon. Yeah. Sometimes you call it like lemony and you put it in your soup for a little lemon. That lemony flavor is that acid of the oxalic acid. And that's the soluble oxalate, the stuff that is more toxic and more bioavailable that you absorb more of. So you get that tartness. And I think that's partly why people like spinach is it has a little bit of tart bite in yeah. it. But it also has this tendency to sort of coat your teeth. Exactly. Yep. So what is that doing? That soluble oxalate is noticing the calcium in your teeth and probably sticking to your teeth wow. because it's sticking to the calcium in your teeth. It may be draining, you know, potentially pulling calcium. It's certainly not good for your mouth. Now, another one, there's 
some of these oxalates turn into these crystals and some foods are full of the crystals and kiwi is one of them. And if you blend it up into a juice or a smoothie, you can bust open like with a strong blender, like the Vitamix, you can bust open these crystals that are like double pointed toothpicks. And they are quite irritating and cause a lot of mouth pain. It's just mechanical damage. that's actually stabbing cells and making you Mm -hmm. vulnerable to the presence of the enzymes and the soluble oxalates and other toxins right there in your mucosal membrane. So there's, there's that side of it too. So interesting. So that's a pretty small list so far. Yeah. It's not too many. And the leafy green department, you're good. If you could just steer away from the three major ones, which would be spinach, Swiss chard and, and bee greens. Now in the tuber department, we basically have white potatoes and sweet potatoes, and they're both pretty high in oxalate especially the russets and the Idaho potatoes that we use to make tater tots and mm-hmm. potato chips and French fries and all these foods have become just ubiquitous in the last 60 years. They didn't even exist when I was first found, you know, like these were weird special foods for like treats, but now you go out and see their fries or chips or it's either fries are baked. And then there's like tater tots in school and then all forms of potato chips, including the new root chips that are full of beets, which is another high oxalate food because the green's high and so is the beet, full of sweet potatoes, full of plantains, which aren't even a root, but plantains are now chips. So in the chip department, you can get into trouble. Even um, those dried banana chips, mm-hmm. really high in soluble oxalate. So, so all types of sweet potatoes are... Predominantly the orange orange or purple or or all? Purple's worse than orange. Orange, like a a kind of modest, medium potato would have about 100 milligrams of oxalate. And any food that's over 10 is considered a high oxalate food. I used to, so I gave up my vegetarianism and I traded in my tofu and beans for sweet potato. So I was making sweet potato for either breakfast, lunch, or dinner almost every day for years. Mm -hmm. and then having Swiss chard for dinner at least once a week, because I've been eating Swiss chard since I was growing it as a nine-year-old, and mm, not good. So adding in the meat alone didn't do me any favors because I switched out. I right. added in more sweet potato. So what was the kind of trigger that went off for you that made you go, gosh, it's it's got to be this oxalate. So you know, you're eating this by all accounts, very healthy diet. And everyone say, you know, you're, you're the epitome of health. You're, you're very disciplined that you're experiencing some negative health implications. First, like what were the, was it still the joint pain? Was it still the the inflammation? Was it showing on your blood markers? Oh no, it doesn't show on your blood markers, low CRP. Everything looks great. Most of us who've poisoned ourselves on oxalate, we look great on paper. (laughs) That's part of the problem. There's not a lot of good objective tests, although I had high BUN a lot because of kidney stress and had funny white cell counts. And that's interesting. Hopefully we'll talk about the effects of oxalate on our immune cells. Scary. But for me, I mean, I just struggled with really deep fatigue for a long time and developed a lot of arthritis. That arthritis of 12, when I was vegan and under a lot of stress, it got so bad. Like I woke up one day, every single joint was in arthritic pain, except my spine. I could barely move out of bed. In my beginning of my vegan years, I was going through stress, but I was only 25 years old and I felt 80 and I continued to feel exhausted and in pain for most of my adulthood. And 
then I'm, you know, I'm working, I have a full-time job and I'm writing research grants at the university of faculty position and my ability to focus and write grants and do budgets and do 50 hours a week of this high level thinking, needing to use your brain. Boy, did it take a lot of discipline and focus to make my brain function. I was really starting to lose it and I couldn't sit anymore. I had to kneel on the floor half of the day and go in up and down from occasional chair, mostly kneeling because my back was pretty terrible. I lost a whole month. I couldn't leave the house. My back was out. Right. I, I needed help toileting. I mean, it was bad. Do you think you had some, some predisposition genetically or was it just because of your high level of exposure as a child? It's a combination of both. I mean, with anybody that's fully healthy, you give them enough of a poison, they get enough of it, it'll take them down, right? Because yep. they literally can die from this. But the vulnerabilities start in childhood. Every vulnerability to any illness starts before conception. So the state of the sperm and the egg that became you matters. And then the state of health of the uterus and the bloodstream of the mother matters. I was almost a miscarriage. My mother bled heavily and was told I was a miscarriage at three months. She'd wow. already had three miscarriages because of thyroid problems. I turned out to be the third live birth out of five kids. I was the longest and the heaviest one. So I don't know what happened there, but that probably wasn't a great thing to happen. But it might have been why I was the longest and the heaviest one. The recovery from that placental tear, or maybe it was the death of a twin. I don't know. But that wasn't so good. But my mother was into refinishing furniture. And while she's pregnant with me, they were putting on a three-story addition, which is pretty toxic. And then I was a newborn and she's painting with oil-based paints. And I ended up with ear infections as a kid. And they had me on penicillin a lot. They finally took out my tonsils at age five. And my experience with my clients is that a huge number of us were that kind of kid, the kid who needed the antibiotics and was dragged to the doctor and had these issues like the ear infection. I mean, they banned me from the swimming pool in the summer. It was terrible. And so that's a big part of the vulnerability. I think if you end up with sickness as a child where you're on a lot of antibiotics, definitely it's going to affect your microbiome and your gut health and your overall well-being that's going to make you more vulnerable to toxins. So other vegetables, just to kind of sum that up before we kind of move on from tubers, no oxalates. So like typical things people would eat in the fitness community, right? Like everyone over consumes broccoli and asparagus and cucumbers and things like that. And I'm curious where you sit on, on where those sit on the continuum of negative implications from oxalate. Well, broccoli can be a little on the high side with oxalate. It's one example where if you boil your broccoli pretty thoroughly, it has to get almost a little mushy. You can reduce the oxalate by a third to a half and make it much more suitable. So boiling, like that's what your grandmother used to do. And it's not, it hasn't been cool to boil for 30 years. Like it's mm -hmm. not California. So boiling broccoli is good. Raw broccoli, especially juiced or whatever is probably not a great idea. In fact, any of these brassica vegetables. Broccoli is part of this family where most of the protocyl is actually brassica. You just don't realize that cauliflower, broccoli, arugula, watercress, radishes, it's all cabbage. It's all the cabbage family. And they have some kind of nasty enzymes that can be harmful in other ways. They have a tendency to be hard to digest. They are pretty rough with other compounds, but from oxalate standpoint, they're okay. So other compounds, actually, I wanted to go there is, is this idea of, of where would you put oxalates? And I think you've already said this, but just maybe clarifying where you put oxalates as, as compared against lectins and phytates, I guess, 
don't know if you, I don't if you explore those and research those at all as oh, yeah. far as their implications and how you would speak to those those how how they all interrelate or, or which one's most insidious. I'd love to just have you kind of talk to that a little bit. They're all pretty insidious and they're really popular in the sort of vegan based and plant heavy diet because they're coming from grains, they're coming from beans, the lectins are very heavy coming from beans and grains as well. Lectins are basically in anything that's functionally the seed and fruit of the plant. And I really think that I destroyed my gut on the combination of the oxalate and the beans. I was slow cooking beans when I was teaching. I was working in the inner city of Cleveland. Teaching. Isn't that what vegans are supposed to do? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's a great gut destroying program, <laughs> I tell you. And, and once you really trash your gut, recovering complete gut health is pretty hard. I mean, the gut really needs to be protected. And unfortunately, phytates, lectins, and oxalate, and all the other chemicals that we don't talk about, those are the three that have a, the biggest conversation. But there's another dozen more. When you look at the actual mechanism of damage that they're doing to us, it's all gut damage. Plants are after your gut. Yeah. <laughs> Let's ask this question then. This is an opinion, of course, but do you think any vegetables have any benefit or is that, so would you say just like, you know, we've been taught that these things are useful, but maybe not. I've come full circle on that because I was this really big veggie eater. I love the texture, the culinary benefits, the beautiful plate full of vegetables, the, you know, the kind of brag thing where you could lay out this incredible spread and I'm like eating none now. I eat a little bit of roasted red pepper and a little bit of capers and some mustard, you know, yellow mustard, you know, Dijon on my burgers now and then. But I am not eating them because brassica is really the vegetable department. And I found after going off the high oxalate foods, which are not the brassicas, I could hear my gut telling me, uh-uh. And so those of us with gut damage and constipation and so on, we do better without the soluble fiber in the vegetables. We do better without the other chemicals in the, in the vegetables. So some people need to avoid vegetables for health reasons. And so whether there's a problem with folic acid or, you know, folate to get that right, because mm -hmm. supplements are another big problem because they're using the wrong forms in so many supplements. Right. You and know, whatever's cheap, right? Yeah. And I, you know, when I first I was read a lot of toxicology literature trying to figure out this oxalate thing because it really messed with my brain. You know, I was so into vegetables and had this education. I was supposed to know stuff. So, you know, I've been down deep in the, the literature trying mm -hmm. to figure this stuff out. And it was really interesting in the toxicology literature how these guys, one guy said in this textbook, Look, it would be better if we could invent a synthetic diet because these natural foods, he's talking plants. I mean, he obviously he has this bias against meat because he's saying we need a synthetic diet in order to be healthy. And now I'm realizing, you know, some synthetic, I'd take a synthetic vitamin over a natural folate any day <laughs> really? because of what it's done to my gut. And now as a. So even, even an isolated, even an isolated vitamin, you think from, from vegetables is not a good idea. Well. I'm not sure the meaning of that question, but if I had to, if I felt that my vegetable free diet required me to supplement a little bit of vitamin C or folate or something, I'd rather take the supplement than the vitamin at this point. Right, but if it's coming from a natural versus a synthetic source. You know, that's something that is partially based on this naturalistic fallacy that anything that's natural is good. 
But nature's out there duking it out. I mean, plants are trying to defend themselves with poisons. And so using the plant source may or may not be a good thing. You know, it's actually the Japanese developed synthetic forms of thiamine that are magical, that are really powerful nutrients, a way of nutrient delivery. And that synthetic form is is the preferred form. So the oxalate learning has been a fantastic journey of growing up and being willing to look past these simplistic ideas that nature is so wonderful. And if you got it out of a plan, it had to be better. I'm not so sure about that. I think we need to question these basic assumptions and get real. I love it. Question everything. And that, that's really the paradigm that we take in this, this show is like, we don't know anything. We, like, who's it for? What body is it going into? What are we able to recover from ultimately? I pulled you off track there after tubers and potatoes. Um, I'd love <laughs> to kind of come back to what other subcategories of foods we have with oxalates. So there's the grains, right? All the bran and the germ and the grains are pretty high in oxalate. And even your white flour tortilla has 10 milligrams of oxalate in it. And it's not a lot. I mean, that's certainly tolerable. But we think of white flour and white rice as bad. But from an oxalate standpoint, they're an improvement, which might validate 10,000 years of Chinese people eating white rice instead of brown rice. Maybe they were right. (laughs) Think about that. That could be true. The grains can be bad in both phytates, lectins, and oxalate. Why do you believe they're, they're called healthy foods? And do you believe that's just a misnomer? Well, we invent everything we believe. Everything we're believing is a human invention, including our systems of morality and our sense of right and wrong. And we grew up a sense of right and wrong in the era of the French Revolution and the American Revolution when we were thinking, the rights of man. We shouldn't have all this hierarchy of who's real people and who's the downtrodden. We shouldn't have so many proletariat little, you know, victims. We should all be on the same level and that helped create America the beautiful, right? We're a democracy. Everyone's, it's a meritocracy. Everyone's just has, just perform and you can grow and you're not confined to a class. Well, these were ideas and in that thinking, in that mindset was this idea that We should be more moral overall, and something about eating meat might be immoral. So we started raising plants. Eating plants became a way of being good. And a lot of the elites that were in the abolitionist movement and the um, temperance movement was just so important in the late 1700s and early 1800s. People had to rely on alcohol for safe drinking, and, and everybody was drunk, and it was becoming a huge social crisis. And the whole movement to educate people to not drink and how to eat healthy and not beat your wife and all this stuff was coming off the pulpit and from these um, religious people trying to get people to not drink so much. And, and in that message, bran was promoted, the whole whole wheat, you know, like living on whole wheat and bran and grain and all this stuff is a way to keep people from being overly sexual and being violent. And like, so it got all tied up, like eating bran and wheat and whole grains got tied up with goodness and morality and slavery and alcoholism. Like, so it all comes out of like our philosophical ideas that then paint our sense of reality. And it has really infused in the culture. And there's a big vegetarian movement that started around 1840. The first vegetarian society started in 1850. And then they have progressively invaded science. In fact, they founded science. The the Seventh-day Adventist vegetarians founded the Dietetics Association. The woman who wrote the first nutrition textbook was a card-carrying Seventh-day Adventist vegan 
who was only two degrees of separation from the woman who founded Seventh-day Adventism, that same person who wrote that textbook for the field of nutrition, her name was still on the textbook when I went to school. Wow. So talk to me about that story. So I'm glad that you went there because it's very interesting. Most people listening won't have any idea about what Seventh-day Adventists are, as I didn't very recently. What's behind that whole perpetuation of the veganism mentality? Okay. Well, turns out if you believe in Seventh-day Adventism, which is an idea that God is coming back right away and it's eminent, genital touching will take you to hell. And it's very important that we save your soul and prevent you. Is that before marriage or just in general? All genital touching is bad in the Seventh-day okay. Adventist teachings. So Harvey Kellogg, who set type for the whites, who founded Seventh-day Adventism, learned as a 12-year-old that mothers should separate their children and not let them learn about sex with each other and you know, not have sex life. So Harvey Kellogg, as far as I can tell, died a, uh, a virgin, and, and he and his wife adopted all their children because he didn't believe in sex because he learned this at a very impressionable age. So and it's sort of probably the justification for vegetarianism in monasteries. That you don't want your monks who are being close to God to be homosexuals banging each other in a corridor, sure, right? Sure. So it's, you suck the kind of reproductive potential out of people if you sort of starve them with some whole grains and lack of meat. So, so that's really where it's coming from. And they set up all these food industries like Kellogg's and the cereal yeah. companies. I, and think, I think I want to, you need to clarify that a little more. So what, what did Harvey Kellogg perpetuate? Like, so I, the story that I've read goes a little bit deeper than that, right? Like he was, he was so adamant about providing people with something that was not an animal-based product because he wanted everyone to not perpetuate sexuality. I haven't read all his biographies to really get his motivation, but obviously he was an interesting guy. And what was his, his big innovation, there was kind of tension within Seventh-day Adventism about him because he was reaching out to the elites and he put together a very fancy spa at um, the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Michigan and reached out to presidents and the elites. And it was the elites who came there and he gave them the spa experience, teaching them to eat peanut butter. He invented peanut butter and these nut substitutes and these plant-based foods. And they were all just like vegans now. Oh, I'm at the spa and I'm eating no meat and eating these new foods, this peanut butter. And they, he, he invented a kind of spam like meat that was made of peanuts, <laughs> canned meat substitutes. So the vegan substitutions were invented by people working at the sanitarium. He, his wife worked with him inventing these foods that they could serve and promote as products. And the guests really fell in love with the cornflakes and his brother took the patent and created the company and voila, breakfast cereal is now replacing meat. People before always ate meat and eggs for breakfast. And suddenly the elites were eating this cornflakes and saying it was so great. And off went this industrialized food. And it was part of the whole birth of this factories making our food. Yeah. And that's, that's the part that I didn't want to skip over is, is him intentionally creating these cornflake things that, you know, the aristocracy took on as, oh, this is delicious. This is crunchy. We like this. This is a rich food. And then everyone else started to follow, follow suit. And it's blows my mind to think that someone, you know, like Kellogg could start a whole belief. But then, you know, so then I have people all the time that push back on this because it's like, well, you know, we've been, we've been vegans for thousands of years in the yogic tradition. 
And I, I think it's more of a poverty thing at that level. Like they may try to rationalize it as, well, we don't eat meat because we love these things. And maybe at some point you get to that point where you, you, you feel like you feel negative about killing something. But I, I think that's like you said, that's another one of these belief systems that's been perpetuated. Somebody was berating me. Somebody sent me a message okay. berating me because I have the word yogi in my Instagram profile, like bodybuilding yogi. And he berated me because he said, you must take it down because you eat meat. And I, I thought that was a really interesting paradigm. And it really, and I was like, that's oh, interesting that he would have this belief that someone who eats meat is inherently bad and can't follow these yogic principles, right? So for me, as you say, life is about optimizing me, optimizing health so I can lead and I can contribute. It's not about choosing not to eat meat, although I understand why they, they chose to do that. But I think the, the point where that started was yogic traditions historically eating vegan, but it may have been more of a poverty thing than maybe a choice. And what we don't recognize is that when we started building complex societies, we started to have rules because you couldn't have towns and cities without a lot of rules. And then we had to have governments. And, and so the clergy would create rules about what is and isn't okay to eat because it was important to the economic survival of the community. Mm. So depending on your ecosystem, you could eat certain kinds of meat and perpetuate indefinitely. And that kind of ecological niche would work there. And in India, it doesn't work to eat the cow. You need the milk so badly that you don't want to eat the cow because you want to preserve the milk and get enough milk because of the ecology there. And in the Middle East, you can't grow pork. Pork eats a lot of the same things we do. And because of that environment, there's not good woods for the pigs to go out and eat eat the acorns. And so it doesn't work in that ecological niche to eat pork. So you see the, the Muslim tradition and the Jewish tradition from the Middle East saying pork is bad. And just like in India, the cow is sacred and you shouldn't eat it. It's because you can't have complex agricultural-based societies with population densities without some control over what you eat. That's such an interesting perspective. I had never heard that before. Whereas that makes so much sense, right? When you're starting to form a community or, or a culture, ultimately, society, you have to curate. So otherwise, because you get a small number of people that just come in and eat all the things that they want and it's gone. Yeah. So interesting. So I, I think people are always like, what do I do? Like, what do I actually focus on? So other than let's just maybe eliminate vegetables altogether. <laughs> Do Which is not something I'm promoting. Okay, it's so something let's talk about that, that I like to do for myself, but that's not my message. You know, as much as I have learned in the library about how toxic plants really are, and unlearned that naive fantasy that plants are so there, they want to be eaten, and they're so benign and sweet. <laughs> no, they wouldn't have survived if they're that edible because they would have been eaten out of existence. So the only plants that survived the kind of dog eat dog world of nature are the ones that are poisonous enough to defend themselves and defend their babies. And the babies are the seeds. You got to really look out for the seeds. That's where the lectins, the phytates, the oxalates are all concentrated. And we built a whole kind of life on beans and grains, which are the seeds. So anyway, that's maybe a side note. Where were we going with this? <laughs> no, that's so interesting. I, I just want to kind of get your perspective on should people be including vegetables? I guess maybe the the, the one Rather than giving your opinion, let's walk through it objectively, right? So fiber, some of the arguments for vegetables, how important is fiber? Mm, well, 
in the research, soluble fiber is a gut irritant and is mm-hmm. a toxin to the gut. And yeah. soluble fiber was so big, like oatmeal was going to save the day back in the 1980s. You know, the Kellogg thing as well? <laughs> yes. Probably is, right? Yeah. It, yeah. It's, uh, you know, and anything you can justify a cheap product that's profitable, you're going yeah. to really push that message. Did you look, did you look at the, the origin of oatmeal? Was it Kellogg's as well? Who is rolling oats? Well, you know, oats have been used for a long time in the northern British Isles and uh, places like that. But turning them into, I mean, I think they used fermentation processes that lowered the phytase. Sure. It did. But now we've just that old knowledge about how to make plants tolerable using clay to chelate heavy metals, using fermentation to germinate the seeds to get rid of the phytates and some of the other toxins. You know, people ate really differently than we do. Now we want to take something off the shelf and instify it in a microwave or whatever. And that is not in concert with all the wisdom we once had about how to tolerate these plants. The plants needed special preparation and a lot of that's gone out the window. Very, very interesting. So tell me then, what are your thoughts on carnivore diet? So what are the limitations of someone just going an all meat diet? I'm presuming you've explored it. I know know it's not maybe your expertise or maybe it is. I'd love to have you give me your thoughts there. Like what would be the, the arguments for and against a carnivore diet. So mm-hmm. most of us, if you're a human being, you grew up on either tea, peanut butter, French fries, tater tots, high oxalate foods. And if you've been also, then what happens with a lot of people is they start off with that kind of bad high oxalate foods, the potato chips and peanut butter, and then they convert into the good high oxalate foods, the spinach and the almonds. We didn't talk about almonds, and but the nuts are terrible. Like forget nuts. All They're a mess. Nuts are a map. Just get rid of nuts. I mean, that's a simple thing. You can have a few pistachios, which are full of mold, by the way. You can have a few macadamias, but basically just ditch the nuts. And in peanuts, we call them a nut. Technically, it's a legume. Legumes Uh are high. Black beans are high. White beans are high. Your Boston big beans are high in Oxley. So they're problematic. So you probably grew up on that. What? Even sprouting. Sprouting hasn't been heavily tested. And the few tests we have two out of three tests suggest that sprouting makes oxalates worse. Some nuts, because what you're doing is you're converting calcium oxalate, the storage form that you don't absorb very well, oxalate crystals, you're converting them into the soluble form, the ions that are more easily absorbed. So the bioavailability, the oxalate in a sprouted nut may be more than it is in a dormant nut. Wow. The phytates are lower. It fixes the other things. This is one reason why oxalate is the worst. It's harder to get around it. Even the traditional food preparation techniques of soaking and fermentation don't always fix it. Now, there's a couple studies in some cases that show some degree of fermentation will start degenerating some of the oxalate because there are some bacteria that eat oxalate. But that's just the research isn't there to say conclusively. But that's one reason sauerkraut's so great. Use a slow oxalate cabbage. Cabbage is very low in oxalate. Then you ferment it to make it much more digestible and you increase the B vitamins and so on. And so sauerkraut's an example of a proper historic preparation technique of a vegetable. But even that, you eat it in like a one or two tablespoons. You don't pour a cord into a blender, turn it into a smoothie and drink it. That would be... So I guess you're a huge fan of like vegan proteins. Everyone <laughs> should eat vegan proteins. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, you can stay vegan and 
start healing your oxalate problem and start. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. Cause I bet there's some vegans here. Yeah. So you, you're pretty much stuck with pea protein and you've got to get some protein in you to help your body recover. But there's well, pea so protein's many- got its own its own issues as well because there's I, not there's not a single one in America that passes California's bylaws for lead having appropriate amounts of lead none don't exist yet which is again its own you want to get toxic like <laughs> huge issue right see plants have have mechanisms for bioaccumulating toxins and still surviving but even plants get sick on heavy metals so, so they can only handle so much mm-hmm. animals we really have to be careful about these heavy metals and toxins and it really your cow that you eat is young and if it got really sick on either oxalates or heavy metals you kind of know it and then you don't eat it so even though we've been told meats are toxic they're way less toxic it just heavy metal accumulation and so on. The part of the modern problem with meats on the meat side is that we've got so many other toxins we've added to the environment that animals can bioaccumulate, you know, pesticides and these fat soluble stuff that we're putting out there. So we just, we have to stop soiling the nest if we want to save ourselves as a species, there's that piece. You can be vegan and, and stay vegan for a while, but I think it's a very losing strategy in terms of your own health. So any, any consideration for yourself against the, so, you know, people say, well, you shouldn't eat meat because what are your thoughts on, on those discussions? And I know they've been refuted, but I'd love to hear you. You have a brilliant way of articulating yourself. So I'd love to hear your opinion on all these things that people are saying are wrong with meats. Thank you. But unfortunately, most people who are committed to veganism, yeah, they're committed. Oh, won't react well to you, my. You need, you need to talk to. Uh, I forget the guy's name now. Michael, uh, you'll know who I'm talking about. The the vegan zealot guy who's got the podcast. He was on my Michael G something. He was on my podcast. I forget. His oh, name. okay. Yeah. So this is an important discussion to have because I don't consider a monocropped anything, whether it's pea, soybeans, wheat, or rice, to be the least bit good for any animal on the planet. Right. It's destroying habitat. It literally kills the animals in the soil, the way we treat that soil, break it up and destroy the habitat of soil animals. And then the field animals who would dare to try to live there, the moles and voles and crickets and bunnies and so on, don't do well, especially when the combine comes by and slices them up in in the harvest process. And then, you know, when we have animals on pasture, we improve the habitat for the soil organisms, the moles and voles, and especially the birds. The birds love it, especially if you have trees around your pasture land. It creates habitat for animals. So pasture land is a kind of classic earth-based system that buffalo and other animals have always been part of. And it's a part of the ecosystem that allowed humans to thrive. We're part of that kind of pastoral ecosystem and we're trying to change it over to monocropping and saying a tortilla is healthier than a steak and that's not logical that doesn't make any sense my food has been coming from local farms for 20 years i got a grant a long time ago to interview local farmers and start plugging in consumers to meat from local farms where we know how it's raised you can find out whether they dock the tails of the animal how that animal lived, whether they treated the fields. You just work straight with your local farmers and promote agriculture in your community. Where do you live? I live in the East Coast. I started this work in North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and I'm now in Richmond, Virginia. I've been here for about 13 years. So people in those areas can go to these, can go to some community you've created? Oh, it's 
It's wonderful. Pretty easy. We we are so lucky here in in North Carolina and Virginia. We have a great network of small local farms, and and we've made the mistakes right here in the capital city of Virginia. We've destroyed just beautiful pasture land that used to be pasture land, and it's now Whole Foods and a you know high rise townhouses and shopping, and it's like so ironic to turn the real food production of pasture land into a Whole Foods. So we can get Brussels sprouts from China, which is what's happening there. So, I mean, I just, you could just, I could go nuts on this because I'm an environmentalist. I live in a small footprint, old house with panels on my roof. I have hot water, solar. I moved here because you can walk to stores. We have like an 89% walkability, no sidewalks. We were so close to things. And I wanted something on the bus line. I have a local bus line and a park and ride. So when I work downtown at the university, I could ride my bike to the bus and take the bus downtown and not have a, you know, I used to have a one car family harder to do here because the priority where I live now is not biking and walking. To me, if you want, a community that supports the well-being of animals and the ecosystem. You have a system that allows people to walk instead of run over turtles every spring. I'm like turtles just die every spring. They're trying to cross the road. Like there's so much more we could do to protect animals and protect ecosystem that supports both them and us. Like we're in it together with animals. We just have to know more how it really works. Doesn't it seem like the entire U.S infrastructure is built to to perpetuate that you have to drive everywhere i just moved into an area where the same like i can walk everywhere which is awesome but everywhere else like this is the only little subdivision in the in the whole city i live in tampa florida where you can actually wow. walk anywhere everywhere else you, you must have a car there's like no sidewalks and it's like highways it's crazy yeah, florida scares me every time i go to florida and i'm driving from the west over to through orlando i'm like Oh my gosh, you people <laughs> cutting each other off at 80 miles an hour on the highway. I'm like, geez, this is not eco-friendly. This is not human-friendly. This is not friendly in anything. So the, there's lots of ways we live that are insensitive to the needs of animals. But I wouldn't say me buying one cow once a year from my local farm to feed my family is a slaughtering animals at all. It's improving the economy of my local farms. It's protecting the local land from being developed. And it's one animal, one animals whose probably intent in the ecosystem, its whole purpose is to be eaten, fulfilling its purpose so that I can fulfill my purpose and stop being sick and expensive because I'm sick because I eat the wrong foods. Mm -hmm. Sally, that's a great way to end it. Great place. Where can people find more from you? I have a little website called sallyknorton.com. And I'm on Instagram at SK Norton. Those are the two best places. And I found you on YouTube. You've got some amazing talks in there. I highly suggest people go check out Sally on YouTube because you do an amazing job. And obviously, we kind of got touched on a lot of things here, but you go a lot deeper in some of your amazing talks. So I highly suggest people head over there, check it out. And hopefully, do you have a book out? You don't have a book yet, do you? I'm working on a book. We have a, I have a contract with Random House and we're, a book will be out in about a year. Good. I think because we need it, right? I mean, people need to have an understanding of, of, I mean, you just did a really good job kind of breaking it down, but I'm sure there's so much more that we can understand just how to optimize. You know, this is what we're about. We're optimizing our body. And if I can remove something as simple as spinach, you know, Swiss chard and beet greens. And sweet um, potatoes, unfortunately. You and I, we have to give up our sweet potatoes, which is not easy. Yeah, that hurts. That hurts. But I'll do it. I'll do it. As long as they don't take away my olive oil, I'm happy. (laughs) You can have your olive oil. All right. Thanks, Sally. Have a great day. Blessings.
Thank you for listening all the way through the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Ben Pakulski wrapping it up. Now tell me she's not an incredibly brilliant, brilliant human. Whether or not you choose to agree with everything Dr. Norton says is irrelevant. I think there's a lot of wisdom and brilliance behind what she says. And personally, I have removed oxalates from my diet and noticed a pretty significant difference in overall digestion, bloating, even honestly hunger. It feels like my hunger seems to be slightly less because I don't feel like I have as much stomach irritation. And it's not to say I don't eat vegetables at all. We're just removing kind of the four big offenders that she mentions here. I'm also very aware to avoid lectins and, and high amounts of phytic acid, but we didn't get into that too much. Something if you guys want to do the deep dive, you can look into. So hopefully enjoy the podcast. If you did share it with at least one person you know and love, you can choose to share it with someone who eats a lot of vegetables and maybe is suffering from some arthritic pains. WildAlaskanSeafoodBox.com is the sponsor of this episode. Thank you so much for being here. And don't forget to go take care of our sponsors because they're taking care of us, allowing us to continue this amazing podcast. Our amazing conversations with brilliant guests would not be possible without our sponsors. And Wild Alaskan Seafood Box is just hooking you guys up with the best quality seafood that exists. And, and so you understand, guys, this is something that I've personally curated. This is a company that I've been in contact with for well over a year, and they wanted to promote on the podcast in the past, but I wouldn't do it until I had a, a good amount of time experimenting with their products and testing the products for months and realizing it's so consistent, so high quality, because I know a lot of you have tried ship boxes in the past, consistent monthly boxes, and they just don't do a good job. And these guys so far get my highest accolade. They do absolutely fantastic work, amazing quality fish, and it's always delivered, still frozen, right straight to your door every month. So wildlastingseafoodbox.com slash Ben, thank you very much for being here. I'm truly grateful for your time and for your ear. And I know you guys have the opportunity to choose a lot of different things to consume right now, whether it be audiobooks, whether it be music, but you've chosen to be here with me and I do not take that lightly. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode, and I look forward to seeing you here next time. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.